Revelation chapter 3. We'll be finishing our study through the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation this morning. We've looked at Revelation 2 and now finishing in Revelation chapter 3. We'll be in Revelation 3 verse 14 this morning and reading the letter that was written to the church at Laodicea. As we have done in our study of each of these letters, there is a a pattern of a familiar pattern of the instruction that is given to these letters that we will follow in our study to this letter to the church at Laodicea this morning. But first, I want to give you just some, some background of the church at Laodicea that will help us to understand the situation, the circumstances that this letter is, is addressing as, as Jesus gives these words. Of course, John is writing these words, but they're coming from Jesus, this instruction to the church. But let's begin with reading in chapter 3, verse 14, and then finishing chapter 3 of Revelation, we read this. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Of course, this is, this is a reference to Jesus, that Jesus is the one speaking. So Jesus is the amen. Amen is a word transliterated from a Hebrew word meaning true or, or, or truth. And so Jesus is the truth. He is the faithful and true witness. He is uh, the beginning of God's creation, which certainly we would be wrong if we understood that as meaning that Jesus was created. He was not created, but rather this is, this is teaching us that Jesus was involved in creation itself. The firstborn over creation He's referred to elsewhere, meaning that he has preeminence over all of God's created order. He is above and beyond. He has authority over all of creation because we understand that he himself played a role, John 1 tells us, in in creation itself, that, that by him all things were created, and without him was not anything created that was created, John chapter 1 tells us. And so Jesus, the the author and perfecter of our faith. Jesus, the the one who created all things, Jesus, the true and faithful witness, speaks these words to the church in Laodicea, verse 15. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I have Need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. And those whom I love, I reproach and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with the Father on his throne. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So there, of course, is this familiar pattern that we will follow this morning and your notes are even structured this way, the commendation, the condemnation, the command, the call, and then, of course, words of application for us. But 
in order to better understand each of these points, I want us to first think about the, the city of Laodicea itself. There is a map we've been using throughout this study that shows how the, the churches that are addressed in these seven letters are arranged in, this is the modern day country of Turkey, and in this day and time, this was the region that was known as Asia. And so scattered throughout Asia on these, this, this postal route that would have begun in the city of Ephesus and then followed northward through Smyrna, Pergamum, then eastward toward Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and now Laodicea, we find these churches addressed with these seven letters that were intended for the churches in the cities that bear their name, but also intended for the, the churches as a whole. The, un, the understanding was that even though these letters were addressed to these specific congregations, these specific churches, that they would be read by all of the churches. And so in that sense, they were considered to be circular letters, letters that were intended to be circulated and studied throughout these churches because of the instruction. And in the same way, we continue to find instruction for the church today in these letters. The city of Laodicea was founded in the mid-3rd century BC by the Seleucid ruler Antiochus II. And so what, what, happened, what, we, what happened is after the rule of Alexander the Great, the kingdom of Greece was divided amongst the four generals of Alexander. And over time, there really rose to be two great ruling powers. You've heard some of these names before, the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. And so the Seleucid dynasty occupied much of what is modern-day Turkey and Asia into the, much of the, the, the Middle East of today. The modern-day countries of Syria and Jordan uh, were a part of the Seleucid dynasty. And then the Ptolemaic dynasty, the Ptolemies, ruled over a lot of what is today North Africa and extended into some of the Sinai Peninsula, which would be the modern-day country of Saudi Arabia. And so there were these two, these two kingdoms that emerged from the fallout of the, the Greek empire that Alexander the Great had built. And, and one of his generals was Antiochus. And Antiochus was succeeded by his son, Antiochus II. And Antiochus II was married to a woman named Laodice. And so he founded the city of Laodicea and then named her, named the city rather, after his wife, Laodice. We know that history tells us that he divorced his wife, Laodice, in 253 BC. And so we don't know precisely when the city itself was founded, but it seems reasonable that it was probably sometime prior to his divorce from his wife who, by the way, history also tells us that his wife, Laodice, was likely his sister as well. Uh, and so this was, Laodicea was a city named in her honor. The city itself was located in a high plateau. So the plateau itself was rather large, but it stood several hundred feet around the surrounding valley. But then there were these mountains that extended above this plateau, some nearly 8,000 feet above sea level. So in this picture, you can see the ruins of part of the ancient city, and you see what appears to be this large, this large uh, plateau area, and then in the distance are these mountains with peaks of, of above 8,000 feet rising from the area surrounding it. And so because of its location along the main, east, at really the intersection of the main east-west and north-south trade routes, Laodicea was 
an important city for commerce and trade. It was also of the six, or excuse me, the seven letters, it was the, the richest of these seven cities, the wealthiest. So it was, had more wealth in Laodicea than any of the other six cities addressed, although some of the other cities each were prominent in their own right, be it for their temples or their theaters or certain types of trade or their, their status within the Roman Empire. Laodicea was known as the wealthiest of these seven cities. And a lot of that had to do, of course, with its location. Laodicea in modern-day Turkey is the, the, the city of Eskihisar, which translated from the Turkish language literally means old fortress. And so the city, being, that it was, being located on this high plateau, was also a, a, a well-built fortress, but there was one strategic flaw in the design of the city of Laodicea that caused them to be vulnerable to besieging forces. And that was the fact that it had no direct source of water. The water for the city, the water supply for the city of Laodicea actually came through a series of underground tunnels known as aqueducts that stretched over the course of some six miles that flowed from the nearby area into the city. And so the next picture that we have actually shows these are the ruins of some of these underground stone tunnels that were created to transport this water from the nearby, the nearby springs of the city of Hierapolis into the city of Laodicea. Of course, surrounding armies, or rather uh, attacking armies, knew this. And so all they would do is simply surround the city and even though the city was a well-built fortress that was difficult to attack, all they had to do was cut off the supply of water to the city, and it was a matter in time until the city would fall. And so this happened several times as different forces, Alexander uh, devised, of course, this great military strategy that his generals continued. So the Seleucids were known as a strong military power with great military strategy, but this was a, a chink in the armor so to speak, a, a real vulnerable position. And so Romans and, and, and other even just surrounding armies that would try to attack the city knew this. They would cut off the water supply and they would be able to conquer the city. And so we know also from history that there was a significant Jewish population in the city of Laodicea. There was upward of 7,500 Jewish men, which meant, of course, that there were likely... Uh, equally more Jewish women and children as well, but s at least 7,500 Jewish men who were settled in the city of Laodicea and a part of the, the synagogue and there in, in the city. I've already mentioned the, uh, the supply of water to the city, but what would happen is the water would come to the city through this series of underground aqueducts and tunnels, it would come from warm springs, warm water or hot water springs near the city of Hierapolis, six miles away. But by the time it traveled underground through these tunnels and arrived at the city, it was both dirty, the water would be dirty, and it would be lukewarm. So in many ways, the people of the city didn't like their supply of water. They would, they would complain, which, you know, I thought it funny when I was thinking about that because one of the things that happens a lot in Chickasha is 
people complain about the water in Chickasha, right? And there are times of the year when uh, the, the water gets brown and people will say, well, the lake is turning over, right? And that's something that if you live in Chickasha and, and you have Chickasha water, you understand and, and you kind of get used to it in a sense. And a lot of people have filtration systems on their home and, and all of that. And so in that sense, we can sort of identify, we can, we can connect with, it's a, a, just a, a simple point, but the idea of this lukewarm water that they didn't like will become important, of course, when we, when we study further on this in just a minute. I've mentioned the wealth of Laodicea. The wealth of the city was actually built on a few key different things. For one, it was an important center of banking. Again, because of its location at the crossroads of these major trade routes, it was a place where trade would happen, and so banks sort of uh, were were established and built up in in the area, uh, in in the city itself and in the area around. And so there were several key banking and financial uh, institutions, if you will, that were, were, that were key to the commerce and the trade, key to loaning money for business, and also key for people to, uh, to, to keep their money and trade with these banks. Also, medicine. There's a mention in here of salve for the eyes. Well, one of the things that, that Laodicea was famous for was a school of medicine that was that was established in the temple to men karu and in this school of medicine the thing they were most well known for was an important an important eye salve an eye ointment that had good medicinal properties that that was devised the 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 if you will the uh, the the pharmacologically right i mean it was it was it, it came from their study of these different uh, substances, and, and I don't know exactly what was in the salve itself. History doesn't really tell us the fine details, but it was well known because of this particular salve that was used throughout the, the, the Roman Empire, but derived from the medical school and the practice there in Laodicea. And, and then finally, they were well known, they were well traveled, this unique form of black wool that came from sheep that were carefully bred in this fertile high plateau land. And so they carefully bred these sheep for this pure form of black wool, and it was known as a Laodicean wool, and it was largely exported throughout the kingdom as well and and sought after. And so because of these things, their banks, their medicine, this unique form of wool, Laodicea was very wealthy. In fact, so independently wealthy that the same earthquake of the year AD 17 that destroyed the cities of Philadelphia and Sardis that we've studied already from Romans chapter 3, that same earthquake, those cities, Sardis and Philadelphia, had to borrow money from the Romans to rebuild. And when they did that, of course, they were required to build temples to Roman emperors, but Laodicea was so wealthy, the city itself and and the officials of the city, that when that earthquake destroyed much of the city of Laodicea, they rebuilt with their own wealth and their own money. So it was independently wealthy and and didn't rely upon the Romans the way that the other kingdoms did. Of course, this wealth led to a sort of a self-reliance and a self-dependence that Jesus addresses with 
his letter here to the Laodiceans. And then the last thing that I would want to say just about the background to the church itself is that we don't know exactly how or when the church at Laodicea was founded, but we know that when Paul writes in Colossians chapter 4, he writes to the Colossians, Colossae, the city, was only about six miles or so, with ten, between six and ten miles, because the city itself was rather spread out, from Laodicea. And, and so, as Paul writes to the, the Colossians, he, he tells them in Colossians chapter 4, verse 16, that they should read the letter that he had written to the church in Laodicea, and that they should send the letter that he had written to the Colossians, and they should send it to the Laodiceans, so that they could read it as well. And so well, there's, no, there's no evidence that Paul ever actually spent time in Laodicea, but it's likely that the church in Laodicea was established during the time of Paul's third missionary journey when he spent several years in Ephesus and Epaphras went out and established churches in the area. And, and so it's likely that Epaphras was involved in planting, establishing the church in Laodicea. Okay, so some background on the, the city of Laodicea, the church of Laodicea, those things that will help us as we dive in. So first of all, let's look at the, the commendation. And you'll notice that in your notes this week, typically I have given you the, uh, s- some notes to kind of fill in. And today you just have the categories. And as much as anything, that's because I was at camp this week and it just took me longer later into the week getting my sermon finished and the, and the notes done. And so uh, so you'll see on, on the screens this morning notes that you'll be able to write in and, and fill in along the way to take note, good notes and, and keep all this together. Several of you have said along the way, hey, I'm taking notes of all this, of the different churches, because I find it really interesting. So you'll just have to do a little more legwork in writing some of this down this morning. But you understand, we see here that there is no, there is no clear commendation given to the church in Laodicea. In other words, Jesus does not praise them anything. Instead, he just jumps right into his rebuke. And when we read and understand the rebuke that he's given them, it makes sense that essentially he had nothing good to say to the church. And so rather than trying to say anything of any praise at all, he he gets directly to the point. Now, I don't know if it was this way at your home, but in my house growing up, Right? The rule was, if you don't have anything good to say, you can finish this for me, right? Then don't say anything at all, right? And essentially, that's what Jesus does with the church at Laodicea, which in its own right is really a, a, fairly, form, a fairly stern form of condemnation in its own right, that he has nothing good to say to the church, and so he doesn't even attempt at making any kind of praise whatsoever. Rather, he jumps right to his condemnation. We see that Jesus rebukes the church at Laodicea for being lukewarm toward their faith. And so in verse 15, John writes these words of Jesus, I know your works. Now that's important because in saying that Jesus knows their works, what he's saying is, I know the way you live. It's not just what you claim that you believe, but I know the way that you really live, right? It's it's not just a matter of, I know the things that you say are true. I know what is preached in your church on Sundays. I know the, the messages. Jesus 
sort of bypasses all of that, if you will, and goes directly to the heart of the matter, which is how they are living. And he says, I know the way that you are living and you are lukewarm. He says, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. I would rather you be cold even that you would be lukewarm. And you remember we talked about the water supply to the city. That the water supply, by the time it arrived at the city, traveling through the six miles of these underground aqueducts, would arrive at the city lukewarm and also dirty just from the sediment that built up over time in these stone, uh, these stone ducts piping you know, of sorts in, in their own day and, and using their own technology that was used to bring in the supply of water to the city. And so the people of the city understood, they connected with this idea of lukewarm water and, and something that was lukewarm that would be spit out, that it was undesirable completely. It would be better if it were hot because then at least if it were hot, it would be useful. It would be better if it were cold because then it would at least be refreshing. As it was, it was lukewarm and undesirable. And what Jesus is saying is, you're neither cold nor hot. You're in the middle. In other words, in other words, you, you, you make an attempt at spiritual things. You, you at least give the, the, the outward lip service toward things of faith, but there's no substance. There's no works to support what you claim to be true. And so he says this, because you are lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. It, it really, Jesus cannot be more graphic. He cannot be more condemning in his, in his words to the church. Essentially, he is saying, because you are, are playing at this faith that you say you have, but there's no evidence, I want nothing to do with you. And when Jesus says to a church, I would have nothing to do with you, then, then those are strong words indeed, right? So he rebukes the church for being lukewarm. In the beginning of the service this morning, I read to you from, from Hebrews chapter 11, which told us that Faith is the, the evidence of things that are not seen. It is the, the conviction is the way the ESV words that. It's the conviction. It's the evidence. Faith gives proof to what we believe because by faith we are able to live for Christ. And, and although we are not perfect, when we live by faith, there will be works that, that demonstrate, that show the realness of the, the, the faith that we have. And so faith produces in us, genuine faith produces in us a fruit, the New Testament teaches, that there's, there's some fruit to show for what's real in our lives. And because there is no fruit to show for the Laodiceans, Jesus says, I would rather you be cold. You're not hot. You're not even cold. You're lukewarm and I'll spew you out of my mouth. It's, it's detestable. The way that you play at your faith, Jesus is saying, is, is, is detestable in my sight. And so the condemnation is for the lukewarmness. The lukewarmness. We'll come back in our points of application and talk more about that. But I want to look at first the command that Jesus gives. Jesus' command for the church at Laodicea is that they would find their identity and their reward in him rather than in the things of the world. 
that they would find both their identity and their reward in him rather than the things of the world. And we, we understand that from these words that are given to the, the church here. In verse 17, he says, You say I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. In other words, you, you've fooled yourselves because you think you don't need anything when in reality you, you need everything, Jesus is saying. You think you have need of nothing when the truth is you want for everything that is lacking. And so he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire. And so we talked about the fact that, there, that the city of Laodicea was an important center of banking because of all of the trade and commerce that flowed through the city. There were coins that were minted in the city of Laodicea that were unique to that city and that were traded throughout the, the surrounding area and throughout ultimately the Seleucid Empire and then even later in time, by the time that this is being written, the, the Romans who, were, who controlled this region. And these coins that were minted in Laodicea were used for trade throughout the area. And, and so talking about this gold that is refined by fire is a pure form of gold. It's, it's reference to the fact that they, they considered themselves to be financially wealthy, financially independent, financially stable. And what Jesus is saying is that, that your trust in your, own, in your own wealth is totally misplaced because you have an impure wealth. You're, you're really spiritually poor is what he's saying to them, even though you think that you're wealthy. You're spiritually poor, and, you're, and there's an impurity. And so by calling for them to, be, to, to have riches and gold that are refined by fire, what Jesus is doing is he's calling them to repentance, calling them to be purified of the self-reliance, of the, self, the, the, the inflated sense of self-worth that caused them to trust in themselves rather than relying upon the strength that God would provide for them. So there's that sense of the impurity in the church. Of course, we know through our study of these different churches as well that one of the major problems facing these churches was that they, the believers in, the, in these churches were riding the fence between worship of Christ and giving in to the Roman practices. There was great pressure for them to offer sacrifices to the Caesars at these temples, and there was pressure for them that they would participate in the cultural practices that surrounded the cult worship, both of the Roman cult of gods and even the, the remnants of the Greek god and the Greek pantheon of gods that still existed in this day and time. And so there was just this, this jumbled up mix of all these different religions and great pressure that people would give in and participate in all of that. Jesus is calling for the church to be purified of all of that, instead to turn to him in worship. Gold refined by fire. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1 that, that our faith is, when it's refined by, by the, the trials that we go through, is worth more than gold that's been refined, gold that's been purified. So there's that connection again in the scripture between the idea of going through trials, going through tribulations, and the refining work, the purifying work that those have in, in purifying our faith. 
And Jesus is saying to this church, I would, I would that you would be purified, that you would cleanse yourselves of your sin. He also says to them that they would, that they would take care, that they would clothe their nakedness with these white garments. We've talked previously in our study of different churches about the white garments that are mentioned, and that's a, a symbol of purity, of purification. The, the white garments were used oftentimes in baptismal ceremonies because that white robe that they would wear, that white garment that they would wear was a, a symbol of purity. And so in any time there was any kind of white garments, typically those were reserved for some kind of a special occasion, much the same as how, you know, in our practice today, brides wear white, that sort of thing, and it's symbolic of purity. What Jesus is saying again is I, that you would be purified, that you would be cleansed of your sin. Wear these white garments, which are symbolic of an inward purity, being clothed outwardly as a symbol of their inward purity, that they would deal with this sin and the self-reliance. And then he also mentions here that they would, they would have this salve to anoint their eyes so that they could see. Again, he's using a reference to something that the, the Laodiceans would have understood because of this eye salve that they were well known for that was used as a medicine and, and exported, if you will, out of Laodicea throughout the, the Roman Empire. Jesus, again, uses these three things. He's, essentially, he's picking on these things that their trust was in, these things that they relied on. And what he's calling them to is to turn away from reliance on themselves and the things that they trusted in that were worldly instead so that they would trust in him. That they would no longer trust in their own wealth. They would no longer trust in their own, their own acts, their own deeds. That they would no longer trust in their, their, their different uh, practices that they thought would earn their favor. But instead they would repent. And so he says in verse 19, he gives this call. That they would be zealous and repent. Be zealous, he says, and, and repent. And then verse 20, these very familiar words. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The picture of coming in and dining with someone is a picture of intimacy, right? Having fellowship together over a meal was an intimate thing. And so what Jesus is saying is if you will be zealous and repent of your sins, if you will turn away from your self-reliance and, and your supposed wealth, and if you will realize that you are spiritually bankrupt and poor and call out to me and repent of your sin, then we can have the fellowship between us restored. Then we can live together in this close fellowship. You know, over the years, many, many times, I've heard uh, different, different preachers who talk about this verse, Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, and oftentimes it's used in the context of someone coming to faith in Christ. And so they will say, friend, Jesus is standing at the, at the door to your heart today, and he's knocking on the door to your heart, and he wants to come in. And although it's true that Christ wants to be in our lives, to be the center of our lives, when we read this in context, he's not 
speaking to individuals, but to the church itself. And he's saying, essentially, to this church in Laodicea, church, I'm on the outside looking in at what's happening. And you, and you pretend that your church is built around the, the things uh, of Christ. You pretend that your church is centered around me, but in reality, I'm an outsider. I'm a stranger in your church, and I'm standing at the door of your church. I'm standing on the outside of your church begging you, if you would just let me in, make me the head of your church, then I will take my rightful place, and I will refine you, and I will bring about your purity, and I, and I, will, and I will lead you to be the people that I've called you to be. This is not just a word for the individuals. It's a word for the church. The church would wake up, that they would turn from their sin, that they, would, that they would invite Jesus to take his rightful place as the head of the church. And so the call is for, you see this, Jesus' call for the church is that they would open the door to him so that he might take his rightful place as the head of the church. That he might take that place that only he deserves as the head of this church and, of course, every other church for that matter. So we've seen there is no commendation, but there's a a condemnation, a rebuke for their worldliness, their lukewarmness. There is the command that they would turn from their self-reliance and then rather than trusting in themselves, rather than being impressed with their own works, that they would find their their reward, that they would find their, their identity in the things of Christ. And then finally, that they would make him the head of their church, give him his rightful place as the head of the church, the, the Lord, if you will, over his body. So to see some application points this morning for us, taken from these instructions given to the church at Laodicea, the first thing that we see is this. As we understand how this letter continues to speak to us today is that we must devote ourselves to living with passion for our faith rather than seeking the praise of the world around us. When Jesus speaks for the church to, in Laodicea to purify themselves, what is it that he uses? What are the words that he talks about in their repentance? He says, be zealous and repent. In other words, have passion. Don't just turn from yourselves, but turn toward me with a passion for me, with a passion to know me, a passion to pursue the things that I would offer you, a passion to make me the, the head of your body, the head of the church. We must devote ourselves in the same way to living with passion for our faith rather than seeking the praise of the world around us. Because the Laodiceans were impressed by themselves and their self-reliance and didn't think that they really needed God because they considered themselves rich, he speaks this word of rebuke to them that you think you are rich, but in actuality you are poor, which is opposite of what Jesus said to the Smyrnans, right? In our study to the letter in Smyrna, we saw that they considered themselves poor, yet they were faithful. And because they were faithful, Jesus says, you think that you are poor, but in truth, you are rich. And to the church that thought of itself as rich, Jesus says this word of rebuke. You think you're rich, but in reality, you're bankrupt spiritually. So we have to devote ourselves to, being, to living with passion rather than seeking the praise of the world around us. Secondly, this, we guard against becoming materially rich yet spiritually poor. 
the same problem that the church at Laodicea faced is a problem that we can face in the church today. Because it's easy to depend upon and rely upon our own means to support ourselves. It's easy to, to trust in the things that we have, the, the money, the building, the, 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 the different resources that God has given to us. And it's so easy to rely upon those resources that God has given us rather than truly relying on the movement of the Spirit to lead us. And so we have to guard against becoming materially rich and yet spiritually poor. This is why it is so important for us as a church to keep, as a part of our giving, to keep the, the, the built-in, if you will, the, the built-in structure that we have of accountability and checks and balances, so to speak, so that the, the finances of our church go through a number of hands. A, a lot of eyes are looking into and speaking into the, the finances and the financial direction of our church so that there are many of us working together to preserve this right balance where we don't become dependent upon the things that we have, thinking that, well, we have everything we need, but instead we understand that everything we've been given is just a tool that God has entrusted to us for his kingdom work so that we wouldn't become materially rich and yet spiritually poor. And think about it this way. I mean, really, in, although there are a lot of things that we would want to change and although you know, we, we would look at a lot of things in our church and say, well, we want to update this or renovate that or we're trying to make sure that we that we preserve the best possible use of those resources that we've been given. The truth is, in, in the relative sense, we are a very materially wealthy church because we have a lot of resources. We have a, a facility of uh, more than 80,000 square feet, right? We, have, we always have the literature that we need. We always have the resources when we take our kids to Falls Creek, we've got a, a cabin that our church owns and, and we have the space for our classes to meet and we have money to minister and meet needs of people in our body and in the community around us to hand out food to those who need it and to step into the lives of those who are hurting and broken and being able to minister. And every one of those things is good. None of those things are wrong in any way, but if we ever arrive at the place where we think, well, we've got what we need, then we've missed it altogether, right? Because the point is that in the midst of all of our things, we would be reminded regularly of our absolute spiritual dependence on God to move in our midst. That even though this is a big building, if the Spirit of God doesn't fill us when we gather together, then we're nothing more than just a country club, right? But by God's grace, if we will trust in him, if we will rely upon him, if we will live with passion for our faith rather than seeking the, the approval of the world around us, then God will move in us. And we won't just be a, a, a gathering place for the, the saints of God. We will instead be an, an army for his kingdom. And so I've, I've used this before, uh, I've told you this before, but I like to remind you of this regularly, that something that my pastor said to our church a lot when I was a kid, and, and it's just, it's, I, and I feel like in some way this is just embedded in me because it was just 
It was spoken in my life year after year, Sunday after Sunday growing up, that the church is not to be a museum for the saints, but it's to be a hospital for sinners, right? That this isn't a place where we gather together to look at all the things that we've built and admire what God has given us. Rather, this is a place where weekly we, we meet together for triage and to, and to bring the saving grace of God in the lives of those who are broken and wounded and to charge back out in the fight armed and equipped for the battle that we've been called to. That's what the church is. That's what First Baptist Chickasha is called to be. And we do that by guarding ourselves against becoming materially rich and yet spiritually poor. Now, hear this. It's important that we understand this. It is not wrong, it is not sin to be materially rich. You understand that? The Bible never calls wealth itself a sin. It says the love of wealth is sin. And the pursuit of wealth is the root of many great problems in our lives, right? When we trust in our wealth rather than trusting in the things of God. But to those that God has blessed with wealth, the wealth itself is not sin. The sin is reliance upon those things. It's not wrong for us to have a lot of resources. In fact, may God continue to multiply and add to our resources because we are gonna be absolutely committed to use everything that he's given us as an instrument for his good, as a tool for his kingdom and the gospel ministry that he's called us to. So may God grow our resources, right? May he continue to bless us materially, but only because we are committed to using everything he's given us for his kingdom. And it's not ours it's his. Everything, every, every bit of it. So we guard ourselves against becoming materially rich yet spiritually poor. And then finally this. And this is so important because everything else that we've talked about in this particular sermon and, and everything else really in, in each of these seven letters really flows from this one foundational central truth that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. That Jesus is the head of this church. Sometimes people will say to me things about, well, you're, you're the head of that church over there, aren't you? And I will always, in, you know, and, and, and in a loving way, and even sometimes in, a, in kind of a tongue-in-cheek and a joking way, but all the while, yet really serious, right? I, I will always be quick to say, no, 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 no. I, I'm the pastor of the church. Uh, I, I'm, the, I'm the one that uh, sometimes is, is out front playing cheerleader and, and other times, you know, is behind the scenes trying to prop things up. But I'm the pastor of the church, but Jesus is the head of this church. And may we always be reminded that Jesus is the head of the church. Not the pastor, not the staff, not the deacons, not the, not the longtime members, not the newcomers with passion and fire. Jesus is the head of the church. He should be the head of our lives individually, and he should be the head of the church as well. And what a condemning thought that here is a church that has left Jesus on the outside, and he's saying to them, church, let me back in. Bring me back in. I mean, how condemning of a thought, right, that Jesus is standing outside of his church. Because in that moment, it becomes true that they are no longer the church. They're just a group of people gathered together, right? Because any church that doesn't have Jesus as its head is not really a church at all. It's just a gathering of people. We say around here that 
we are the church that gathers here in this building, right? We're the church that meets at 4th in Colorado, but the church is not this building. The church are the people that are, that are a part of this body. The church are us as believers who unite together for the cause of Christ, who together, Ephesians chapter 4 tells us, are pushing each other and working together with the strengths and the weaknesses that God has given us, that we are working together to build one another up so that we might mature, reach the point of mature manhood in Christ, that we would no longer be children, but that we would grow up in Christ. And in order to accomplish that, we have to remember that Jesus is the head of the church. And so, Think about these lessons. Think about how important this is for us. Because the most, the most heartbreaking thing of all would be that, that we would be able to say that Jesus is, is on the outside looking in. Now, can I tell you this? Can I tell you this? This is so important. I, I've already mentioned about how really that's a word written to the church, but because we understand that the church is really a collection. It's a body of people, a collection of people. It is, it is completely possible for this statement that was true of the church in Laodicea to be true of our lives individually as the church as well. That, that we would give all of the show and the pretense of being a believer, and yet, in reality, our lives are centered on the wrong things. This week at Falls Creek, our students sang a song, a new song that was introduced to us. And, and the chorus of this song used these words, center my life on your name. That was kind of the, the, the main part of the chorus of that song. Center my life on your name. And I was thinking about that all week long, just the tune playing, those words playing in my head. And as I was sit, sitting down to study for this message, I, I found myself humming that song, right, as I'm typing on the computer, right? Center my life on your name. Because the church can't be centered on Christ if the people in the church aren't centered on Christ. So this morning, I pray that you would be willing to look inwardly and ask yourself this question, is my life centered on Christ? Or is he on the outside looking in? Is Jesus not only the head of the church, is he ahead of, of, of my life? Or is he standing on the outside looking in saying, let me in, give me that place that I deserve as, as your head, as Lord of your life. Maybe you're here this morning and, and you would have to say, you know what, Jesus isn't, he isn't the head of my life because I've never invited him to be the Lord of my life. Then this morning, what would keep you from surrendering control of your life to Jesus? What would keep you from inviting him to be the Lord of your life? Is there, is there anything in your life that you would say, this matters ultimately more to me than, than following Jesus? If that's true, I pray God would break you. I pray that he would humble you, that he would give you an absolute distaste for those things that you would trust in. Your gold, your, your medicines, your your uh, your. your goods for trade, your wool, as it were, to use the, the examples given in this text, that God would cause you to see that all of those things that you and I would trust in that are things of this world are, are temporary and instead that we would fall in love with Jesus and that we would center our lives on him. And so today, in a moment, when we give the 
invitation. If you recognize that today is the day, I need to surrender my life to him. I need to make him the Lord of my life, to center my life around him, then I would, I would urge you to come forward and to give your life to Jesus this morning. That you would make that most important decision you would ever possibly be able to make by making him the head of your life. The head of your life. Maybe this morning you recognize that although you have claimed Jesus as Lord, the truth is he's not Lord of everything in your life. There are areas that you've been withholding, things that you've been holding back that you haven't surrendered to him. Can I remind you of this simple truth? That either he's Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. Because you can't be Lord of just some things because then you're not truly Lord, right? You have to surrender all that you have to him. And so during our time of invitation today, if that's you, I pray that you would come and that you would kneel here in prayer at the altar and that you would surrender everything you have to Jesus to truly make him Lord of your life. Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me this morning? And as I say a word of prayer for us, I wanna invite you now to begin to pray and say uh, that you would look inward and you would say, God, would you speak your truth in my life so that if there's any part of me that isn't centered around you, that you would that you would convict me of that. I want to center my life on you today. Lord, speak your truth to us. Lord, have your way in our hearts, in our lives, so that as we trust in you, as we depend upon you, that you would truly be not only the head of the church, but each one individually, that you would be the head of our lives, the Lord of our lives. Lord, use us for your kingdom, for your work, Lord, empower us through the work of your Holy Spirit to do what you have called us to do as your people, that we might reach the world around us with the gospel, that we might not just live lives centered on our own strength and our own goodness, but instead that we would live lives centered on you. We give you not only priority, we not only give you our praise, but we, we yield control of our lives so that your power may fill us. We pray this in your name this morning, God. Amen.